PV Mart stores are rooted in the communities we serve, and we are connected to the land in the same way our customers are. Whether you're an urban farmer, backyard chicken aficionado, traditional rancher, or anything in between, we offer just the right mix of homesteading, outdoor adventure, DIY, yard and garden, outdoor and workwear, husbandry, livestock, and pet supplies. Whether you're a dabbler or all-in, we're here to help and strive to offer a range of products that will meet the unique needs of our customers. PV Mart will always be there with the tools, equipment, indoor or outdoor wares, seed or feed, for everyday work, fun, or connecting to the land on a whole new level. For more information, go to pvmart.com. Hi, I'm Ian Sherwood. As a songwriter and musician, I've traveled through countless small towns, heard incredible stories, and witnessed some of the amazing ways in which people in towns and cities across this vast country have woven their lives into the land they live on. It's made me think about the way I interact with my own environment and the natural world, where my family's food comes from, what impact I'm having on the planet, and what we're all leaving behind for our kids to inherit. So now I'm on a mission to learn about how I can tap back into the essence of where we all come from. Today, with so much at our fingertips, it's easy to lose sight of the most important connection we have. Welcome to Connected to the Land. In April 2020, not that long ago in truth, but what actually feels like a lifetime ago, I was playing music in Australia when I got a call that the rest of my tour in that country had been canceled. COVID-19 was starting to grip the planet, and the world was going into lockdown. A few weeks later, it was clear that life was not going back to normal for a while, so no more touring, no more live music. My attention got turned to other things, like my family, our home, and then what we were eating and where it came from. I had time to stop and consider my environment in a way that I hadn't allowed myself to do ever. I felt a need to be more connected to something real, and that was the beginning of this journey on Connected to the Land. Since that time, I've had some amazing conversations. The ways in which folks across this country have found to connect themselves back to the land are as varied and diverse as the people themselves. Over the last 56 episodes, I've been surprised, shocked, moved to tears, I've laughed, learned, and had meaningful connections with folks who, had it not been for this podcast, I almost certainly never would have met. So on this, our last episode of Connected to the Land, for now, we're going to take a look back at some of the lessons I've learned and the amazing people I've met. I wanted to know more, and the folks I've spoken with on this adventure have not let me down. When I would call folks up for the interview, we had a few minutes before and after the official conversation to chat a bit about the process of the podcast and to get to know each other a bit. Sometimes in those conversations, we would cover some interesting stuff that never got aired. So I want to share with you a few snippets of the conversations I had with guests before we, quote, turned the mic on. In episode 50, Anila Maharaj tells me about how she snuck her passion for growing into lessons as a French teacher. I, I am really nerdy about this. And I, <laughs> I think it's because maybe I feel so self-conscious about it because I rarely talk to anyone who feels as passionately and who's willing to actually let me talk about something and they're interested in it, you know. <laughs> 
Okay. Like there's only so much plant talk some of my friends or family can take. And, <laughs> right. and yeah. so I've had to, I've had to like sneak it into other parts of my life. Cause I'm also a French teacher and, um, okay. So, right. <laughs> and I, I'm like, Oh, nobody wants to talk plants today. No problem. I'll do it with my students. Right. And we've <laughs> done things like, you know, germinate beans in plastic bags in our classroom, like in a Ziploc and yeah. make observations with the kids. And then I sort of get my fix by talking to them about it. <laughs> Getting the kids to do a different task, but using French in order to describe it. I, I think, I think that's really brilliant. Oh yeah. And I mean, you know, in that particular instance, like I, I worked in uh well, I mean, anyone who's familiar with Toronto, it's like Rexdale. It's uh, I, mm -hmm. I actually went to school in Rexdale and okay. That is one of those communities, like we were talking about, there's, you know, a bit of food scarcity, perhaps, or, or food insecurity. And some of those kids, like, they've never seen the way a bean grows and, like, how it climbs and things like that, right? Yeah. So, but the thing is that, you know, we always have Ziploc bags and plastic bags and paper towel. And so, throwing beans into a bag and then just spritzing them a little bit and watching these kids make this connection that, oh, my gosh, that's where that bean came from. Yeah, it's so fun, and yeah, right. but, I mean, yeah, it's all in French, <laughs> but <laughs> it, it ties in really well with the curriculum when we have to talk yeah. about plant parts. <laughs> in episode fifty-one, Banana Joe and I exchanged some thoughts on different weeds in our gardens, and in Joe's case, the ones he consumes. Have you ever tried nettle tea? I don't think I have. No, I've tried Labrador tea and a few other teas that have uh, nettles in them, but I, I've never just tried regular nettle tea. Yeah, we harvest at this time of the year, and then I grate some ginger with it, and then we have oh, gorse yeah. blooming here. Like the, I, I don't know if you know what yeah. gorse is. Well, and I know I from your from your YouTube video, I, I I know a little bit about it now, only from that though. Oh, great! It's really good. It kind of gives it a little bit of a coconutty flavor. Yeah, uh, yeah, amazing. And that's from Scotland. It's from Scotland. Ulex europaeus huh. was uh, introduced here. It's a bad, noxious weed. People hate it, but I like the flowers, so I use them. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, there's got to be some good coming from it. Well, fantastic. You know, I find, you know, like a lot of, we, we have different uh, invasive species here. Everywhere, everywhere pretty much does, everywhere that, that people go to. Yeah. Um, but there's always some good intent that, you know, there's always something that someone brings it over for a reason, you know, and we have a... We have a gout weed over here. I'm sure you must have a version of it on the West Coast. Gout? The, yeah. It was it was brought over from England as a ground cover before okay. people were putting sod down on their lawns. Is that? Well, we may we may have it here, Ian. You know, dandelions, too, they were introduced mm. from Eurasia. And, and, you know, the thing is, they're very useful, though. You can you can yeah. eat the leaves. The, the, the root was, I believe, a, a coffee substitute. And, of course, the oh. flowers people make wine out of. I didn't know that they were... From, introduced from another uh, another area of the world. Dang oh yeah, nice. absolutely. Blackberries a, too. A co yeah. wow, a, a coffee substitute. Uh, yeah, I, I believe the the root was used as a coffee substitute. Yeah. In episode ten, before we had an amazing conversation about her community's wellness garden, Lori Thompson explains how hard it's been for teachers and as a principal at the Kikino School on the Kikino Métis settlement during the pandemic. I am telling you, like. Parents have no idea of what is actually truly happening behind the scenes for school leaders right now. Uh, it is it is beyond what anybody even has a comprehension of. We're, we're actually being targeted now, I believe, for the frustrations of society. And I feel a lot of pressure that the economy is built off the backs of teachers. And it's we're needed. Uh, this is like mm -hmm. childcare. For right. people. Yeah, and, that's right. Yeah. And that and that's the the bottom line of it. 
but we provide a, a significant ser service uh, at what cost we were not given the time or the resources to do this, yeah. but we're, we're forced to. So it has been um, extremely challenging and I've had to lead in ways I've never had to lead before. And I noticed this last year when this pandemic started and when we started looking at grants uh, because I knew dollars were going to be cut because mm -hmm. for every dollar we give away, it's the working class that will pay it back. Right. We will pay the a, a, a PST. We will pay more in income tax. It has to be paid back. You cannot keep making money. Anybody with a basic economics background knows that. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, while the shift, I believe, is very exciting, I always choose to see the positive of things. Mm -hmm. I recognize it is very hard, heavy lifting. Yeah. For uh, all, all of us involved in this. In episode 12, after my enlightening conversation with Mark Hall, the hunter conservationist, he opened up about his experiences in the wilderness that deepened his connection to the land in a surprising way. Yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity like to be on the show to kind of talk from a perspective which is probably, it's probably going to strike a lot of people to go like, okay, this isn't what the way we thought a hunter would talk, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, and it is true. I mean, f for me, this, you know, like this connection to the land um, goes deeper in the sense that as I've got older as a hunter, I've started to have experiences while hunting that I cannot explain. Hmm. And I'm talking about experiences that are making me come to terms with and be open to the fact that there is something about the natural world that is not just purely biological. Hmm. There is a different spiritual level to the animals, to that world that I'm immersing and interacting with out there that I just can't. I can't explain and I definitely have had things that I've had happen where I'm just like there it's hard to explain them wow. like okay. it it transcends just that these are biological units that are walking around and trying not to get killed by predators and I want to put meat in my freezer like it, it's way beyond that and the more and more I've dug into and read about you know different ontologies of of different indigenous peoples around the world and their relationships to wildlife. Yeah. Um, I'm like, I'm getting it. Yeah. And I'm like, I think I'm getting it to the point where I'm think, I know what you're talking about. Cause I think I've actually been there. Like I've actually had experiences where I'm like, darn, I just about was going to get that deer. And I didn't. And only this and only that I would have had a perfect shot. And I'm like, there's a reason, and it's because that particular deer, you were not meant to harvest that deer. But a week later, the perfect situation presented, and I did harvest the deer, and that's the deer I'm going to put in the freezer. And the reason is because you were meant to harvest that individual animal. It was put there for you. And there's a lot more things that are happening to me out there where I can understand different perspectives 
of how we as human beings relate to the natural world and what those other things are out there. Um, and I mean, that makes it sort of seem scary to, you know, mm. for, for listeners to hear yeah. that. But yeah. um, I actually talked about that one time and I had an indigenous man come up to me and he just walked right up to me, shook my hand and was like close to my face. And he goes, I have never heard a non-indigenous hunter ever talk like that. Wow. And this this is a connection through hunting that is available to everybody to actually transcend some spiritual things and hunting can open some of those doors to you. And partly what I feel that those spiritual things in that spiritual world that's opening up to me as a hunter is meant to do is because I'm meant to go out there and be a voice for these things that don't have a voice. Hmm. And it's, it's pretty, this is a pretty deep, deep discussion, but yeah. this is an aspect of why I am a hunter. Mm-hmm. And this has only come recently in, in my life, kind of like with age. Um, mm-hmm. But I do feel I better understand my place now. And I better understand my place as a hunter, why sometimes it works out for me, why it doesn't most of the time, and then what I'm supposed to do with those experiences afterwards. So. Yeah. I can't think of a single guest that wasn't a sheer delight to talk to. Even when I was learning about something that was well outside my wheelhouse, the passion that folks brought to our conversations made me want to know more about what got them so excited. Whether we were talking about hunting, dog sledding, or tapping maple trees, there were always moments that surprised me and stuck with me. Here are a few of my favorites. In episode 31, Hope Swinimer from Hope for Wildlife explains how she got started in animal rehabilitation and learning empathy. And I wonder if maybe you could maybe take me back to young Hope and where the desire started to help these animals and, and how it ended up turning into what it is today. I know, it's, it's been amazing. And I always tell people it was never really planned, but as a young girl, I was very shy and quiet, but... I lived outside, like you'd get up in the morning and you'd go outside and you didn't come in till, till it was time to eat sort of thing. So I was very connected my whole life, I, I have been. And I think the dream was always there to be able to do something that involved our natural world. Right. And I didn't really know what a wildlife rehab was, of course, when I was young. They probably didn't really exist in, in a lot of parts of, yeah. of Canada. And But it was just a dream to watch nature, learn about nature. I was fascinated by it. I, I'd read, I'd take notes. I, you know, even at a very young age, I just wanted to learn more. So I think that's really how it all started. Mm. And then, you know, I was very lucky to land a job at a veterinary hospital. And before I knew it, you know, I was handling calls, you know, a bird just hit my window. What do I do? My cat just brought in a squirrel. What Mm. do I do? So I had the best bosses in the whole world and they were very gracious and would take these injured animals in. And, and that's how it all started. And then they'd say, okay, Hope, it's up to you now to do the nursing work and, oh. and get them through. Yeah. <laughs> so it was very unorthodox and, and it wasn't really thought of as a wildlife rehab center. Right. It was just thought of as a place to bring injured and orphaned wildlife for the first little while. 
And uh, okay, well, I mean, learning empathy trial by fire, um, I guess, is a is the way to do it. But I mean, I'm also I'm also struck by you. Just it, it sounds as though the way you're describing it is that this was something that you always had an interest in doing. Like I've spoken to a lot of people on the podcast where they they'll live, you know, ha- half a career doing one thing, and then some sort of. Uh, some sort of event will happen in their lives that will change the course of what they're doing and then they end up doing what they're doing now. But it sounds as though this is something from the beginning you've sort of always had an inkling like I really want to, helping animals is something that I want to do. And I think the education component is key to me. Mm. You know, we we divide the work up in, in all kinds of different ways. And to me, I mean, we really have three important goals, like, you know, the actual rehabilitation work itself. Right. And number two, well, or number one, however you want to look at it, is the education component. And I feel there are equally important, but I think education is what's going to make the change. It's getting people reconnected to their natural world. And that's really our mission is, is to make people, I think people have stepped away and gotten lost and, you know, they don't understand some of the very basics of, of natural behavior of wild animals. And there's fear there now that maybe never used to be there. And uh, I really feel strongly about trying to change that. So people understand, you know, what they do need to be fearful of and what they don't need to be fearful of so and it, yeah. it's always been a labor of love I've never ever taken a paycheck from from my work I've always had other jobs yeah. to be able to sustain the charity in our very first episode of connected to the land I spoke with Jody Allaire from birds Canada in this clip he explains the difference between birding bird watching and twitching I'm really glad you brought this up, Jody, because I was gonna I was gonna ask you about the difference between birding and, and bird watching, and uh, depending on where you go, like you, the internet is a crazy thing. You can go down all sorts of different tunnels about people who have very strong opinions about one or the other. Um, and there's there's something else called twitching, and I'm sure you've you've heard of. That. Have you heard of that? Oh yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. All right. So so can you explain to me? what twitching is because the other thing i've learned i've learned is that you don't necessarily want to call an avid twitcher a bird watcher for the exact reason that you just sort of pointed out that some people can get you know sort of in a twist about it so what's 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 a twitcher yeah so again i find people take these terms just too seriously a little bit right (laughs) but this is this is a i think this is a term that originates from um england Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and in Britain, you know, birding is on another level, right? Like a really, and, and, and what a twitcher is, is someone who just chases rare birds, right? Okay. They're, they're really focused on finding rare birds. So if, if you go and twitch something, you know, you've gone, you've gone a bit out of your way to find something that's really unusual, you know? And, and you know what? I think all the birds I know, like, think that's kind of fun to do, you know? Right. And if that's, if it's like, I want to see something cool and different, you know, I, I don't, it doesn't, it's, to me, it's all just a gradation. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Yes. Can you get people that that are just extreme and all they want to see is rare and unusual? And they don't care about the common stuff. Yeah. Like I don't know any of those people, but sure, that could exist. Right. And right, right. and I think that's you know when people are referred to as twitchers, that's what that means. You know. So there's a bit of a negative connotation to that. But honestly, I I sort of disregard that. I, I just you know some people like looking at rare stuff, and most burgers I know you know, love like watching their, their local song sparrows nesting in their yard as much as they do. Well, for me anyway, I love 
watching my local birds as much as I do going to see some rare, unusual, you know, bird that is not normally in the area. Um, all of it is about seeing cool birds and enjoying birds as far as I'm concerned. Right. And it's probably important to, to point out, cause I think people are probably listening to this, wondering what the heck are they talking about with twitching? Uh, but twitching is, is a term and you might know this better than I do, but I think it originated in the fifties. It was a nervous habit of Howard Medhurst, who was a British bird watcher. There you go. That's how that crazy name <laughs> came. <laughs> and then some, somehow it just stuck from there. In episode eight, Rob Reinhardt, pitmaster and owner of Prairie Smoke and Spice Barbecue, walks me through the difference between barbecue and grilling. I love to barbecue as well. Well, I should actually, this this is a great segue because um, I, I'll give you a little story. So I was down south in Nashville um, and I was hanging out with some people down there. They're from, from the southern states and they were talking about barbecue and how they were going to go for barbecue. And I'm like, ah, oh, I love barbecue. Yeah. You know, I've got a grill back home and, and a barbecue back home. And, and I love to, and I love making it in the summertime. And they sort of looked at me sideways and like, Hmm, do you, uh, you were sure you're talking about barbecue and you're not <laughs> actually just talking about grilling. And I yeah. said, I don't actually, I don't, I don't know what's the difference. So to me, they were the same at the time, but they're not. So can you explain the difference to me? Yeah. I mean, traditionally Canadians have done what I refer to as grilling. You know, it could be your propane grill, your gas grill, or charcoal grill. And, you know, we're cooking generally direct heat, relatively short cooks, whether it's burgers, steaks, kebabs, things like that. Um, true southern barbecue is more of an indirect heat cooking method. Mm. It's a low and slow cooking method. Right. And traditionally, it's about taking tough cuts of meat like ribs or beef brisket. And through the course of, you know, hardwood smoke and time, you convert those meats from being tough and chewy to something that's really moist and really tender. It's hard to pick a favorite guest. Really, everyone brought their A-game. And at the end of every conversation, I felt like we could do one or two more podcasts on the subject. Still, there were a few folks who really made an impression on me with their knowledge and personality on the podcast. Here are just a few of the memorable guests from Connected to the Land. In episode 26, Paul LaFrance shared with me his thoughts on the hunter brain in a gatherer society and his trajectory into becoming a deck and landscaping artist. So I ended up working for this company after a few you know, months of building the same linear feet of, of uh, deck. I was, again, stopping off at Shopper's Drug Mart to buy some laxative to slip into people's coffee just for my own personal amusement. <laughs> and, uh, and then the boss invited me into the backyard. Now, here, this is kind of the important part of the story. As a kid growing up, you know, there. You know, when I'm being sitting in this classroom, staring outside, wishing I could be outside. You know, finding out later that my brain comes from the the hunter of the hunter hunter gather societies. That's the ADHD brain is based from that. Like the the genome in the brain is the, is the is the is the the remnant of hunter gatherer cultures where all of the things that would classify someone as being distractible or they're not good with time or mm. you know they're there's a TV on the room. They cannot look at it. Like they, you know, they lose their focus. Uh, you know, they they're spontaneous, impulsive. All of those are the qualities of someone that spends every day hunting for food for their family. Like you're out hunting in the woods, and you're going, uh, well, I'm hunting that rabbit over there, but I hear a rustling in the bushes, and I might be the subject of a very quick and painful death. Like you, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. All of those things would have been necessary. So knowing this, 
it helped me because I'm realizing I need to do what I love. And I ended up getting invited. My boss was like, okay, Paul's getting bored. So he brings me to this backyard one day and it's like, we're going to build this. We're going to build a deck. And I walked into the backyard and as the musician and the lover of Lego and the lover of people, right? those are my three things that have remained since I was a kid. Those three things, music, Lego, and humans are like, I am hyper-focused when it comes to those three topics. And I looked around and I was just like, no, no, this is all wrong. This is just a boring square box. These people need, when they come into the outside, into nature, they need to be able to be in a space where they are escaping the fastest moving culture in the history of humanity, where people are starting to get sick and die from stress-related diseases, which is like commonplace in Japan. And they need to know, we need to make this a draw. We got to move them away from their computers and the anxiety and the stress and move them out into the calming effects right. of nature. And, and I gave my boss all of this information of what we should be doing in one continuous run-on sentence. And then he turned to me and said, Paul, I've heard this before in my life and heard it many times since. Paul, please, for the love of God, stop talking. (laughs) (laughs) And and I realized exactly at that moment um, that that wasn't going to be possible. So I quit. And with no business training, no design training, and the common sense of a small pony, I started uh, cutting-edge construction design, which became Paula France Design, and that was 24 years ago. And we're now an international design firm and, you know, Ended well, up end, ending up on HCT where people came and found me and said, hey, we should do a show around you. And I was like, sure, I'm weird enough. Let's do it. Wait, wait a second. Wait a second. Okay. Well, a couple, so much, so much in there to unpack. Well, well first one, uh, I'll never, I'll never ask you to stop talking because uh, that's what we're here to do. <laughs> so, and you've got fascinating stories, but also, I mean, I just want to, I have to be clear on this. You just, without really ever having any training, you just decided to open up your own design and building company. Did I, did I hear that right? Yep. In episode 11, Rich Francis explains how food became an important window into his connection to the land and how it can help us all on a path of reclamation and how our first path is not always the best fit. Uh, so a lot of those tastes and smells that I remember back then started along on the Peel River in the, the, the Gwich'in settlement area out by um, Fort McPherson Northwest Territories. Um, so there was a fish camp that we'd always go up to every, every summer. We'd spend our summers up there. And so I was, you know, eating the fish, I was eating the caribou, picking the berries, speaking the language. Uh, that was my early kitchen. And then, Mm. you know, through whatever, you know, my dad, you know, he dealt with alcoholism and all that. And my mom moved us back to six nations here to her reserve. Um, growing up here, it was my grandma, you know, like who, she, she grew the garden. She, you know, my grandpa had a farm, so I grew up on the farm. And so that's kind of like, I guess, where my work ethic comes from. But um, I never knew, like, all those things would shape me into being the chef that I am today. I never ambitiously set out to be a chef. Like, I was an iron worker, carpenter. But it was when I became a chef is when I had to go back to those those memories and that connection, not only to the food, but to the language and all that stuff that's kind of so interconnected and that's how I was able to kind of get that push into being the chef that I am today. Right. I mean, I I think I read that, that chef was not your first job. So can you remember, can you remember an instance where like this is, it it suddenly became clear? Like, as you mentioned, a few different jobs you had there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I was a carpenter in London at the time, London, Ontario. And, um, it, it was just a really brutally hot summer. Mm. It was like 50 degrees. And 
sort of putting up walls and there was no breeze. And so I ended up getting a couple uh, heat strokes that summer. Yeah. And I thought, I told my wife at the time, I, I told her, I, I don't think I want to do this anymore. I don't think I can. But at this point, uh, Food Network had started to become a, a household name. Um, I was, you know, after work, I kind of just clumsily flipped through channels and just, that looks pretty cool. Bobby plays. <laughs> Bobby Flay is cooking a steak. Shit, that looks pretty good. Right, right. I never thought nothing of it, and then um, finally, just a lot like the the straw that broke my back. There was just uh, another week of heat strokes, and I I finally said I, I can't do this. And my wife was like, "So what are you gonna do?" And I said, "You know what? I think I'm gonna become a chef." <laughs> And uh, yeah. well, I had everything. I had like my pension. I had all of that. Like I was set. I had a really, really good wage, and right. and I was going to take a gamble on something I knew nothing about. <laughs> it was just a hunch. And um, to say that didn't go over very well would be a lie. But um, <laughs> okay. you know, to this day, yeah. she she stuck by me. Yeah. Um, but we were not together. But you know, like she still supports me. Um, and even then, she's like, okay. If, you want to do this, do this. And then, so I went to Stratford chef school. Mm -hmm. Uh, I never, never cooked professionally a day in my life. And I still have no idea how I got into the program. Uh, Stratford was, you know, at the time it was like a prestigious school and I I didn't, I didn't know nothing. (laughs) Totally agree. But I think that's the one thing that was to my advantage because I I brought nothing with me. Right. Um, there was a pull the there somewhere, though. Obviously, I mean, yeah, there, something there, there, made you I think about it. Actually, yeah. to, to be honest, there really wasn't. I just wanted to cook, and it was huh. a means to an end. It was a means to an end because yeah. I just wanted to forget that my past, and I because there was I, I didn't feel anything there, and mm. I just wanted to cook. And then uh, the moment I stepped foot in a kitchen, there was something inside of me that right. um, that recognized this. And to this day, I, I still believe it's like my my food DNA, my food pathways from like my kids, my ancestors and all that stuff. And I, I took, I was a sponge. I, I absorbed everything. And fast forward two years later, I, I finished top of my class. I got the calling excellence award and wow. I've never used a resume to get a job. <laughs> so it's, it's been pretty cool. That's amazing. In episode 13, Pete Luckett walks me through a delicious glass of Luckett's vineyard phone box red and the spaghetti slurp. So, so I have this beautiful bottle of wine here and a glass of wine. Now I'm a, I'm about to try it. What, what should I be, maybe you can walk me through, what should I be looking at or looking for in this, in this wine? Well, first of all, it's, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So there, I don't think there are any rules to what wine should taste like, what you should eat it with, when you should drink it. It's what you enjoy and what you like. And the thing about wine in your taste buds they're continually uh, evolving. Hmm. So you're always changing your, your tastes and your, your styles and what you like. But uh, for me, uh, our phone box red is our best-selling uh, wine that we uh, produce out of all the 18 different varieties. The phone box red is the leader. It's hard to grow uh, a substantial red in Nova Scotia. We achieve that red by a style of uh, grape uh, processing called Apicimento. It's a style stolen from the Italians. And what it means is that you actually dry the grapes into nearly raisins Mm -hmm. before you press them. And then you can then press those raisin grapes with your fresh grapes that are coming out the field. So what this raisinating of the grapes does, it ramps up the the concentration of the flavors, 
the, the depth, the, the sugar levels, mm. it just runs it all up. So in a world, uh, a cool climate zone, where it's very hard to, to grow big, full, ripe, luscious reds, this is the way that we achieve substance for our reds by this apicimento style. So in the foam box red, it's probably a bigger red than most Nova Scotia reds, mm. just for the fact that it's hard to produce this luscious red here in um, good old Nova Scotia because it is a cool climate zone. Mm -hmm. So now I've established that it's a blend of uh, five different grapes that we grow. And we find that blends quite often, like many uh, wine regions, blends can be a great way to combine different flavors and give a more a little more complexity to the wine. Mm -hmm. When you when you pour in it, a red is usually I know not always, but usually at room temperature. Some of the Nova Scotia reds you might want to serve them just a tad chilled because mm. they can be quite fruity, and a chilled red can just a little bit can really add to the flavour profile. Yeah. So a tad chilled. Uh, once it's in the glass, looking at the colour is always an indication of maybe what the wine's going to uh, taste like. Give it a little swirl around the glass, then get your nose right into it. Don't even just sniff it. Put your nose right into the glass because that nose can really tell you that the aromas, once you've swirled that wine around and introduced a little oxygen, the aromas really start to kick in. So just the aroma can be the mm -hmm. first sensation of actually tasting the wine just through your nose. So once you've done that, you're all settled down. Then here's what I call the spaghetti swirl. And, um, this is a great way to taste wine. And you have to use a bit of imagination here. So right. If you take a, a, a swirl of wine in your mouth, don't swallow it. Just leave it in your mouth and let it float around under your tongue and then around the tongue. And while it's in your mouth, just sort of pout your lips a little, open your mouth just a little bit that you can suck air in, just the same way as you would suck spaghetti up off a fork or off your plate, that last piece of spaghetti, and suck it up. Well, that's what you're doing with the wine. You go, you're introducing air to your taste buds in your mouth. When you do that, it's an amazing thing. This introduction of oxygen to your taste buds makes the wine taste completely different and incredible. And that is, although it looks pretty weird to do this, <laughs> it is a great way to taste wine. I can't help myself. I do it with every glass of wine I taste mm. anywhere in the world. I even do it now when I go to Tim Hortons and I have a double double. <laughs> I'm, I'm sucking my Tim Hortons. People are looking at me like I'm strange. Yeah. <laughs> what, what are the subtle undertones of a Tim Hortons double double that you've discovered? That Oh, yeah. Well, it's, it can be a bit sludgy. Yeah. So this journey I've been on, it's taken me a lot of places in this country via a Zoom connection in my basement, albeit. I've been looking for unique ways in which Canadians have connected themselves to the land, and I've met some incredible people along the way. I've learned about backyard beekeeping, winter garden growing, bushcraft, RVing, and a whole lot more. But at the center of it all, the real connection I've made is with the people I've spoken with, those who have made a connection to the land, a commitment, and a focal point of their lives. 
Like I said, I've learned a lot. Here are a few of my biggest takeaways. Number one, even in the city, it's possible to connect to the land. You might only have eight square feet of balcony space in a condo in downtown Toronto, but you can still plant a few tomatoes or have an herb garden. Sure, it's not the same as an entire homestead, but that small effort can make a huge difference in your relationship with the land. Maybe you're working in an office Monday to Friday, but the weekends could be a perfect opportunity to take the family out into the woods for a camping excursion. Or really, something as simple as getting to know the birds in your neighborhood. There are so many ways in which we can connect ourselves to our natural environment. Number two, it's never too late to start your connection to the land. More than a few times, I had folks tell me that the passion they were sharing with me on the podcast wasn't what they set out into the world to do. Sometimes it takes a huge shift in your thinking and an enormous leap of faith, but other times you just have to get out of your own way and let the world around you do the talking and leading. Number three, always be ready to not be ready. This lesson was maybe the most recurring theme, especially with homesteaders. If you're committed to being more in touch with our natural environment and want to just make it a hobby or perhaps a completely different way of life, being okay with getting caught off guard is a paramount skill. When you're dealing with nature, not everything goes perfectly all the time. You can't schedule a deer on the one weekend you have for hunting. You never know if that hole you made in the ice is really going to yield any fish. Maybe your soil has too much clay. Maybe the frost comes early this year. Or maybe you'll be caught in the wilderness with frozen feet miles away from help. Be aware that nature has its own plan and you're welcome to hop in the jump seat, but really, we're just along for the ride. Yeah, there are so many takeaways I can glean from these conversations. And I think I'll be revisiting them a lot to take back in some of the sage advice dropped by my guests. Well, the world is starting to open up a bit more and I'm hitting the road again. Touring across this country is going to have a very different feel, that's for sure. And not just because it's been a while and we're still dealing with the effects of a pandemic, but also because I now have a stronger understanding of what this land has to offer. The last two years working on this podcast has given me the opportunity to look at the world in a fresh way. I wanted to know more about how I could become a better steward of the land, be more in touch with how my world works on a very visceral level, learn how my actions or inactions were affecting the environment. After two years and over 50 conversations with some very passionate people, I think I've only scratched the surface. You see, being connected to the land, I've learned, isn't just about building a deck or planting a garden. It isn't just about watching birds from your window or spending time in the woods or even making a homestead. Really, it's about a choice, a decision. And when you make that decision to be connected, whether you're eight years old or 80, you can find creative ways to help foster that connection. Whether you live in rural Alberta, northern BC, or downtown Toronto, a connection to the land is waiting for us all. And that's our podcast. I hope listening to our guests speak about their passions has helped you with your connection to the land. I'm Ian Sherwood, and thanks for joining me on this adventure. Connected to the Land is a PV Industries podcast produced by Village Sound, and I'm your host, Ian Sherwood. A special thanks to this episode's sponsor, PV Mart, 
the 100% Canadian-owned, down-to-earth retail chain. If you enjoyed this program, you should consider subscribing. Also, you can check us out at connectedtotheland.info, our affiliated website and a great resource for homesteading, farming, and all things connected to the land. Thanks for listening.